0: Welcome back to Chartology. I am your host, Ken, Chip Chase. Doing a PSA. What about PSA? Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh wow! Okay. I hold to the inscription. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is why church nurseries are unscriptural and wrong, and so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Yay! Yeah. So am I a bad guy for saying you're? That's not fair! Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. (laughs) Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth! (laughs) Grateful to have you joining us today for episode 113 of the Do Theology. Podcast in episode seven of Chartology. We've been walking through the chart and examining why are particular doctrines listed in the columns in which they have been placed. We've been working through the primary column, and this is the first doctrine that I believe there would be first significant controversies, first significant conversation within the realm of Christendom about whether or not this particular doctrine belongs in the primary column. All the other doctrines that we've examined. The vast, vast majority of anyone who cares to call themselves a Christian agrees on that point. There might be some that would try to identify themselves as believers and yet deny those things, and we would say, nope, that's actually kind of a deal breaker. You are outside the realm of historic, biblical, orthodox Christianity. This one, however, uh, this particular doctrine brings about a lot more conversation, a lot more discussion about, is this necessary to affirm? Uh, There are some that would deny it, but say... Uh, there were some that would affirm it and say, this is uh, this is correct doctrine, but we don't believe it's primary. There are others who would say it's not even—they would disagree with it altogether, but still try to claim the title of, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, etc. And so we want to dig into this. We want to think very carefully about this doctrine and understand it correctly, knowing, hey, what does the Bible actually say about this? What, what is presented here in terms of of the gospel of Christ, in terms of of what— the atonement of Christ, what was going on there in terms of how uh, Christ was reconciling us to the Father. So, I just want to get into a few things. You know, there are lots of different theories on the atonement out there, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat that I'm not going to get deeply into those. I'll just, there, there's, there's some that you probably have heard of there's christus victor that 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 christ in in his death on the cross he was victorious, and so that one something it it accomplished something and i we certainly do agree that Christ was victorious over the grave he was victorious over sin and death and hell and all those things, but if it's limited to that, there has to be something more going on and I think that's going to be a continuous theme in in thinking about some of these other theories of the atonement. Uh, there's like the, the example theory that says, well, Jesus was, was our example for us to show us what a life of obedience to God ought to look like, and certainly Christ is an example for us, and we see passages of Scripture that talk about Christ as our example, but an example doesn't save, right? it doesn't save so there has to be something more going on there's the moral influence theory that that us seeing all the things that Christ did and and his devotion to the lord that sure that's just going to inspire us it's going to well up within us this this hope and this trust and this this faith that's going to lead to obedience to the father and again the the the, the work of Christ absolutely should be an inspiration but it is far from the full picture of what was a, uh, being accomplished there on the cross there are other theories that are a lot more questionable. The ransom to Satan, I say questionable, this is just outright false. Uh, Jesus did not pay a fine to the devil to save us. Uh, that's not something that the Bible teaches. Nowhere in the Bible do we have that. We do have l- ransom language in the Bible, and so we do want to recognize that, that there was a there was a payment that was made, but it was not to Satan. It was not to the devil. And then there's the recapitulation theory, and this one is— this teaches that Jesus, like, recapitulated the experience of human life. So you look at all the stages of human life. If you look at uh, the the eras of history, think of of Adam in the garden, and and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and Israel, the people of Israel walking through the wilderness, and Moses, and all of the all everything of of redemption history. Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, he recapitulated. He basically lived in like short cycle form. All of the events of human history, but he succeeded where everyone else failed he He was obedient he was, he observed the law properly, he did all the things that Adam should have done that Israel should have done that all these all these people should have done, but he they failed. Christ was successful in that regard, and so by doing that, he now has the right to provide life for people and Again, this this is a rather interesting theory, but it's just not taught anywhere in the scripture. We don't see this kind of language, we don't see this kind of things. I, I do think there's some truth to the idea that Jesus succeeded where others failed. I think we have that very clearly in in many places, but that is not the core of what's happening at the cross. And I that's that's a really about as deep as I want to go in some of the other theories of the atonement, recognizing, hey, you know, there's there's elements of truth in those theories. But they're not the whole thing, right? They're not the, even the main thing when it comes to the substitutionary work of Christ upon the cross. That's really where we've got to get to. And so we this is about why is penal substitutionary atonement, why is that a primary issue? Because that's the main thing that we're focusing on. I'm not getting into all those other theories. Perhaps there will be another episode some other time where we dive much more deeply into those things. But for now, I want the focus to be on penal substitutionary atonement the primary question has to be, before we even talk about any of those other theories, the primary question has to be, is Penal Substitutionary Atonement, is that a biblical doctrine? Is this something that the Bible actually teaches? And I think there are numerous texts that very, very clearly teach a Penal Substitutionary Atonement idea. And the language that's used in the theological application of that language, all of those things come together. And so I'm going to survey for us just a handful of texts, and when I say a handful... I need you to know that there are so many texts that would teach this concept and that would that would uh, cause us to understand the atonement of Christ as being a substitutionary atonement that I'm not even going to have time to get to them all because there's just so many. But I'm going to survey what I think are some of the most significant and clearest of, of the bunch. So I'm just going to begin with 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf— so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Clearly, there's a substitutionary concept there. He made him who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was perfect. He had no sin in himself. We talked about that, right, in the the episode on the unique nature of Christ. We talked about that idea. There, There was no sin in Christ whatsoever, and yet God made him who did not know any sin to be sin on our behalf. He, he took on our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There's an exchange happening. We give Christ our sin, Christ gives us His righteousness, and that exchange happens. There's that substitutionary concept there. We have First Peter two twenty four, which reads this, "...who Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree, so that, having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By His wounds we you were healed." Again, there's this exchange concept going on here. There's this, this idea of substitution. He bore our sin in His body so that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. By His wounds, you were healed. There's, there's an exchange happening. There's that substitution happened, Though we should have received the things that, that Christ received, Christ took it for us upon the cross. In that passage, Peter quotes from Isaiah 53, and this is just another phenomenal text that so clearly teaches this substitutionary idea. Isaiah 53,4 through6 says this, "Surely our griefs he himself bore." There we have again, Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray; each of us have turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I was reading from the LSB there. LSB likes to insert the Yahweh in for the where, where you might find the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all all caps. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. LSB likes to insert that in there, which I kind of like as a stylistic touch. But we have this idea here. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is the the penal idea of the substitutionary atonement, where we should have received punishment because of our sin. God is a just God. He is a holy God. He cannot ignore sin. He cannot overlook sin. It has to be dealt with. It has to be addressed. Well, instead of that coming upon us, it fell to Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities, and the chastising of our peace fell upon him. By his wounds we are healed. It's an amazing text. It's an amazing. Te- and really it's truly like, th- that text alone, I on the basis of that text alone, I really find it difficult to to see how anyone could deny the concept of penal substitutionary atonement because it's just so clear. It's so evident there that it that it was on our behalf, it was for our sake, there was an exchange that happened, the things that should have been upon us fell to Christ instead. So I, I really struggle to know how it is that people get around texts like this, because it is just so clear. Well, jumping back into the New Testament, first uh, in First Peter once again, uh, Peter writes in First Peter chapter three, for Christ also suffered for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God. The righteous for the unrighteous, substitutionary language concept are very clearly there there's you know, there's a whole variety of passage also in Paul's writings and I'm not going to have time to survey all of them I do you want to highlight a couple of key ones or really one key one in particular the concept of the word there's a theological concept called propitiation and we see this in a couple of places within the New Testament the theological word propitiation means a wrath satisfying sacrifice and this can only be true, true that concept can only be true in a substitutionary, understanding. So, we have Romans chapter 3. It's a little bit of a longer section, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified by as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, for a demonstration of his righteousness. Just an incredible concept right there. The propitiation God God displayed publicly Jesus Christ as a propitiation, as that wrath appeasing sacrifice, wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Sometimes the, the word atonement is brought in to the definition of that word. The text goes on to say, in the, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is really where the concept of the substitutionary atonement really the rubber meets the road with this concept right here, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Have you ever wondered, how can it be, how can it be that that God, the, the righteous just judge of all the universe, could ever and under any circumstances allow sinful human beings into his glorious presence in heaven and eventually upon the new heavens and the new earth when all things are restored? How could that be? How could God do that and be just. If he just ignores sin, he would not be a just God. And if he were to punish sin, he could not, if he were to punish sin upon us as individuals who committed those sins, he could not be the justifier of us who have faith. There would be no faith. There would be, there would only be hell and judgment for everyone who sins. So in that way, God could be just, but not the justifier. If you try to make him the justifier without being just, well, you just run into—it's just completely nonsensical. How can someone justify someone when he himself is not just? It would be an unjust action, right? So you think of like a crooked judge who knowingly and willfully— commutes sentences or or, or just uh, dismisses fines, dismisses things that that he does not have purview to do. He does not have the right to do that. There's individuals who have committed real crimes, and the crooked judge is just letting them get off scot-free. Well, he's justifying individuals. He's declaring them not guilty in a sense, but he's not just. We would look at that judge and say, you are a wicked judge. This individual has committed atrocities, and and you are not Bringing the weight of the law to bear on them. It's a menace to society. Like that, that's, that, that's not just. That's not right. We would not look at that upon anything right. Well, it is only in the substitutionary atonement of Christ where, where both these things can come together and both be true, that God is just. He must address the issue of our sin. That cannot be ignored. It cannot be overlooked. It cannot be dismissed. It has to be addressed. And He did it in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died upon that cross. And the wrath of God that was due to us, and Paul is going to use that language, that we are saved from the wrath of God. That wrath was coming against us in the sacrifice of Christ. Instead of that wrath being directed to us, it was directed upon His Son, Jesus Christ, as that propitiation, that wrath-satisfying sacrifice so that sin is dealt with. It is just. Justice has been accomplished. And... He can be the justifier of those who have faith when we come in repentance and faith before jesus christ and say lord i am i'm sorry for my sin i have committed these against you as it is, it is wrong and i have no means of salvation of my own merit will you save me i i place my faith in you i put my trust in you as the only means of my salvation in that moment the lord justifies the one who has faith declaring us righteous in His sight. That exchange takes place. The the the, the righteousness, the uh, atonement that was accomplished upon the cross becomes applied to the one who has faith. And we are justified in His sight, declared righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's a beautiful, wonderful doctrine. And it is only true. All these passages can only be true with a right understanding of the penal substitutionary nature of christ's death upon the cross. Different people object to the the sacrifice of christ of the uh, t- substitutionary idea of the sacrifice of Christ for different reasons, and some of those are theological some of those are just trying to reconcile a few things there There was a really famous concept that was thrown around for a while, the idea of divine child abuse, cosmic child abuse. That oh well how we could never believe in in this concept of penal substitutionary atonement because that's just tantamount to divine child abuse. Here you have the beloved son of God, his child, his son, and he is subjecting him to that and pouring out his wrath upon him. That's not right. That's not that's not good. Well who would ever want to worship a God like that? And so the concept of penal substitutionary is mocked and derided and there's a really, really easy response to that kind of criticism. It's a, it's a criticism that's really born either out of ignorance or out of willful rejection of, of what the Bible says about this. Uh, someone may not fully understand the, the nature of the substitutionary atonement of Christ and what Jesus was doing. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus was voluntarily going to his death. Jesus says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down willingly. Right. So it is not as though God is, is grabbing His Son and slapping Him on that cross and saying, I'm going to punish you for all the sins of everybody else because that's just how it's got to be. That's, that's, that's not the way it is. This is God the Father and God the Son working in concert with one another, where the Son says, yes, I will go to the cross voluntarily. I will subject myself to this for the sake of saving sinners. And so he does. It's not cosmic child abuse. Jesus went to that death voluntarily, enduring the wrath of God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. So that, that idea that this mocking of penal substitutionary atonement, it, it doesn't stand up to Scripture, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny in any way, uh, logically or theologically or biblically, right? We have all these biblical texts. Again, I've just scratched on, on the surface on the passage of Scripture that talk about this. So, so there we have the biblical text. We have some of the objections that are laid out, and I uh, just touched on a couple of the different theory, other alternative theories that are out there. The, the question, I hope, is, been, is clear for you, why is this in the primary column? And the short answer to that is, without the substitutionary atonement of Christ, you do not have a gospel. It is that fundamental to the faith. If you do not have Christ taking your sin upon Himself and, and Him giving you His righteousness, you do not have salvation. You do not have a gospel. All those other theories of the atonement, they do not satisfy the requirements of the law. They do not satisfy what justice demands. And they all ultimately are lead to just Horrible. I, I, was, I was reading through these different theories. Okay, like the moral influence theory. Oh, seeing the work, it, it just is going to inspire you, and you're going to well up. You're going to have all this hope. You're going to have all this stuff inside you. And it's like, oh, now you can go work and uh, accomplish your salvation on in your own strength. Like that's that's not a gospel. That's not hopeful. The, the example theory. Oh, yeah, this is Christ's example. Well, I can't live up to that. I, that's not good news. It's it's not it's not good news. It's not it's not gospel. So this is why it has to be primary. We have to understand it in the primary column because without it, there is no gospel, there is no hope, and it is so crystal clear. It transcends, I I argue so strongly that this would transcend hermeneutics, right? You, You look at these passages, they're just so, so clear on the face of them. To get around the concept of penal substitutionary atonement from these texts, you would have to outright deny the facts of what these texts actually say. You have to say, nope, Peter was wrong. Paul was wrong. Isaiah was wrong. They got it wrong. You're doing that... You've clearly left the reservation in terms of biblical Christianity, uh, and you are off doing something different that is not Christianity. So that is why it is in the primary column, and that is why uh, this is such an important and really a blessed doctrine. Before I sign off, there's one thing that I would like to recommend to you as far as a resource for further study on this. Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution, written by a trio of authors that before I picked up this book, I'd never heard of, and honestly, I've not heard of them since. So I don't know what else they're involved with and what they're doing, uh, but it, it's just a fantastic book. It's divided into different parts, and I just encourage you to, to pick it up. It's it's accessible. It's readable. It's, it's, not, it's not so academic or so high that that you know, no one could understand it, uh, but it's very straightforward and very clear. Uh, the first part is making the case for penal substitutionary atonement. Of course, it walks through the biblical foundation and variety of texts and really does a really great job, especially the passage on the Passover and Christ is our Passover and, and what the original Passover meant and, and the significance there, as well as the Day of the Atonement, the Day of Atonement, rather, in the in the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement and the significance of the scapegoat. That's really important explores the the implications of the, the theological implications and the significance of it, and of course the practical implications of this. For us, on an everyday basis, this is not just an ethereal doctrine. This is really a precious, important doctrine. And then they walk through church history, and so they, they deal with a lot of the other theories of the atonement. Uh, they, they answer the questions about all those things and walk through church history and show how this is the penal substitutionary atonement, is a doctrine that has been embraced by the church throughout all church ages, and the different arguments that have been advanced in favor of other theories have been responded to within church history. And so they walk through and uh, demonstrate all of that, going all the way back to Justin Martyr, roughly 100 AD. That's that's amazing. In part two, they answer objections, answer critics. There's different uh, different responses that that are made against. Uh, penal substitutionary atonement and different objections levied, and so they answer them. They answer it from a biblical standpoint, answers it from a cultural standpoint, uh, the concept of violence and, and what, what that means, and uh, justice, the concepts of justice and our understanding of God. Is God a loving God? Is He not a forgiving God, etc.? So there's all these different things, all these different objections that are levied against penal substitutionary atonement, and they respond and they answer all of those and really do a phenomenal job. With that, I particularly like the the one the one of one of the final chapters dealing with different kinds of objections that really don't fit in terms of it uh, don't fit in other categories. So uh, they call it like the vague objection. Someone just doesn't like it because they just don't like it, and they can't really provide a reason why. It's like well, this it's not an argument. You at the end of the day, we have to come back to what does the Bible say, and we have to embrace that. A lot of people, I believe, as they are. Objecting to penal substitutionary atonement. They're doing so on an emotional level, and they address the emotional objection and argument within the book as well. And I can I can understand on uh, the emotional arguments from a from one perspective of just like, okay, well, maybe it just doesn't feel good. Well, yeah, but you know what else doesn't feel good is is understanding that. God is a holy God and we have transgressed his law. Like that doesn't feel good. But when you understand penal substitutionary atonement and what is accomplished on the cross for us, it's good news. It is really, really good news. Praise God for penal substitutionary atonement. Praise God for his work, for Christ's work upon the cross, taking the wrath of God on our behalf. And in turn, we get to receive the righteousness of Christ. Why doesn't that feel good that that should feel good That should have a positive emotional response i it it's just this doctrine really is such a precious thing, and it belongs in the primary column and so yeah there's again a book book recommendation i'm I'm about to go off preaching again. I don't need to do that. Pierce for our transgressions. Steve Jeffrey, Michael Ovie, and Andrew Sock, or Sack or Satch or however you pronounce his name. I do not know because I have never heard of his name before. But Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitutionary Atonement, uh, this book was endorsed. Even though I don't recognize the authors, I rec- recognize the endorsements. D.A. Carson, John Frame, Tom Schreiner, I. Howard Marshall, Peter O'Brien, just, just well-known, th- respected theolog- theologians. Um, it's a good book highly recommend, uh, answers all the objections and presents the biblical case. So that is that. Well, I, I hope this was edifying for you. I hope that you can see the biblical case and understand, hey, this is this really is a primary issue. We do need to fight for penal substitutionary atonement. There are individuals who deny this. So I think of guys like N.T. Wright did not like penal substitutionary atonement. Some of the guys that were connected to I think the Bible Project uh, did not like Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Tim Mackey, I think, would, would be one of those guys, just guys that just really struggle with, uh, with these concepts and, and really do a real disservice in, in, in their attempts at explaining it away and such. And we just have to recognize, hey, what, what these guys are doing, whatever you want to call it, it's not historic biblical Christianity. The Bible says what the Bible says. Church history has been very clear about the different arguments and things that have gone on over the years. So we just need to be wise. We need to be discerning. We need to understand that they are violating the primary doctrine with a denial of those things. So, well, very good. That is, that is that. Thank you for listening. Again, uh, if you have any comments or questions, you want to reach out, show at dotheology.com. And yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback. Love to interact with you. And I hope that you are out there doing theology for the glory of God. Till we meet again, be blessed, be a blessing.